The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop suggesting this is it for the new .NET Rocks theme song and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 489 with guest Sean Wildermuth, recorded live Monday, September 21st, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wishes he'd never invested in green cheese, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard here. Howdy, howdy. What's up, man? Uh, too much, you know. It's that magic time again where somehow we publish shows twice a week and yet we're never home. We're not home. And uh, I wish I was back in New London right now, actually, because it's uh, nice weather back there. So I think, hey, uh, Better Know Framework's going to be interesting today. Let's run the music and I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Really? All right. There's those voices again. I keep hearing them, those voices. Uh, today we're talking about system.windows.interop. Now, this namespace provides supporting types for interop between Windows Presentation Foundation and the Win32 APIs uh, and other technologies. Provides base classes for specific interop scenarios involving WPF. So we have things like the ActiveX host right. class, which hosts an ActiveX control. If you have a third-party control that's an ActiveX control that is so integral to your Windows Forms app, you just can't do without it. There's no WPF equivalent. You got to host it in there. That's what that's for. So there is a way. There is a way. And then there's also stuff like document object hosts for doc objects. And then little things too, like HWIND hosts a Win32 window as an element using the, the HWIND handle. Right. Yeah. Pretty cool. So not just plain old com interop, but specifically interopping with the old UI stuff for WPF. Yep. Both both com, ActiveX, and the Windows API. Pretty cool. System.windows.interop. Who's yakking at us now, Richard? This is an email from Daniel Stuhler. 
And he dodged the whole name issue by saying, Dear .NET Rocks. What name issue? There is no name issue. <laughs> Jesus, people. I was listening to show 476, the panel discussion on Is Software Development Too Complex? Yeah. Which we got a lot of email on. Yeah, we did. Very, very impassioned show. And something one of the audience members said struck me. He drew an interesting parallel from his experience as a draftsman and his transition into CAD. He said how great it was for the draftsmen to switch, but once people started retiring and new people joined, there were more CAD technicians than draftsmen, right. and how they were not very good draftsmen. Right. He went on to say how he was seeing something similar in software development. As a young developer myself, I have to admit that I agree with him. When I left school, I was in no way prepared to be a professional developer. However, I was very prepared to do what it would take to close that gap. After several failed interviews, I was becoming disheartened. However, luck did strike, and at a job fair, I met a lead developer for a company who seemed to take an interest in me. I got through the interview, and it's interesting that he says, got through the interview. Like, all yeah. developers hate interviews. Right. true. Got hired, but still was not capable of performing on a professional level. I think most developers hate interaction with other humans in general. <laughs> My coworkers were great, though. Almost all senior-level developers took me under their wing and helped me along. I learned to ask lots of questions on several new technologies, and I grew at a rapid rate. So essentially, I had an apprenticeship that you guys mentioned before on the show. Why can't more companies be willing to take on young developers who are willing to learn and help them? It did not take long for me to shape into a professional, and it would really not be that much trouble if the whole industry adapted this. You know, we keep dancing around this topic. I think it's almost a show unto itself. But you know, I, and I think about the show we did with Corey Haynes as well. Yeah, where you have this idea of not only apprenticeship but also the concept of a journeyman. Right. That yeah. You, that's... you actually have this evolution in your skills uh, along the way. So, Daniel, thanks for the great email. Yeah. Uh, a mug is on its way to you. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows. Anything, send us an email, .NET rocks at franklins.net. And if you have any .NET Rocks stories you'd like to share, good, bad, ugly, indifferent quips, things that you uh, want to express, give us a call and leave us a message. We'll play it on show 500. The number outside the United States is 860-447-8832. Inside the U.S., toll-free, 877-492-6751. And yes, you can just call and say, hey, .NET rocks. Yeah, that'd be fun. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and uh, how to pronounce your name would be nice. And Richard. Sir. We have a winner for this week's Dev Connections contest. Nice. Who is it? Did you know about the Dev Connections contest? I did know about the contest. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you might not know, dear listener. So uh, if you don't know about it, we're giving away a free pass to Dev Connections in November. Airfare and hotel included. Airfare and hotel included. So we're going to pay your flight, we're going to pay your hotel, and we're going to pay your entrance fee to Dev Connections in Vegas. Come party with us. November 9th through 12th. And all you got to do is go to .netrocks.com and answer a question about the latest show, and we'll pick from the random answers. So this week's winner, Jeff Jin, you get a .net Rocks mug. And you're entered into the final prize drawing to get that free trip to Connections. That's right. Well, I guess that brings us to Sean Wildermuth. Hi, Sean. How are you guys doing today? Doing very well. Uh, I guess we should, uh, we should introduce you properly. Sean Wildermuth is a Microsoft MVP for C-Sharp, a member of the INETA Speakers Bureau, and author of six books on .NET. 
Sean's involved with Microsoft as a Silverlight Insider, Data Insider, and Connected Technology Advisor. He has been uh, seen speaking at a variety of international conferences, including SDC Netherlands, VS Live, WinDev, and DevReach in Bulgaria. Sean has written dozens of articles for a variety of magazines and websites, including MSDN, DevSource, InformIT, Code Magazine, ServerSide.net, and MSDN Online. He has over 20 years in software development, regularly blogs about a range of topics, including Silverlight, Oslo, databases, XML, and web services on his blog at wildermuth.com. W-I-L-D-E-R-M-U-T-H.com. Welcome back, Sean. Thank you. It's good to be back. We haven't spoke to you since uh, since you took the microphone at DevLink. At that That's true. show we were just That's talking true. about. Yeah, I'm not uh, very good at keeping uh, um, opinions to myself. You may have figured that out by now. Uh, you're very good at not doing that. Actually, <laughs> the way you should say. <laughs> and haven't you been doing a tour uh, around Silverlight lately? I have. Uh, I run uh, Agila Train, which is a training company, and we do the Silverlight tour across the United States as well as partners that do it uh, internationally, Canada, Latin America, Europe. We're not in Asia yet, but we're working on it. And we uh, also have an advanced Silverlight course that we've been teaching about once a quarter. It goes a little bit more in-depth from where the architects and such. It strikes me that this seems to be the technology that people are all excited about, like folks are lining up to learn more. Well, I I think it um, provides a a space that a lot of people are looking for, which is a lot of us are are, um, pained by uh, uh, customers asking us to put line business apps in the browser. And after battling with, uh, with JavaScript and the DOM for, for 10 years, I think people are seeing it as kind of a, a way that they can back get back into the development that they used to like doing. And uh, plus, it's also a sort of a way to back into the new UI model, the WPF and all this good stuff without actually having to go whole hog into XAML. Yeah, well, it, that's kind of an interesting point because, uh, you know, even though Silverlight's at 3 now, version 3, it's still a subset, not a perfect subset, but a subset of uh, XAML, um, of uh, WPF's XAML. And so when people want to learn it, uh, Silverlight's definitely the easier way to go. Um, one of the things I think, think is interesting there is I've talked to a lot of people who've kind of gone that route. And by the time they spent a little time in Silverlight, they've gone, you know, I wish there were a X or Y or Z in, in, in XAML. I, I don't know why they just didn't put it in. And then they go look at uh, WPF and they go, oh, oh, there is a rich way to, you know, uh, use text formatting. There is a rich commanding infrastructure. There is a rich this and this and that. When you have a you know a 50 meg um, uh, framework, you can do a lot more than when you have a four and three quarters meg framework. Right, Sean. I was reading your blog post on the importance of declarative UI, uh, and and it was interesting because at first when I saw this, I was like, everybody gets declarative UI. Why do we need you know how much more can you elaborate? And then as I was reading it. Everything started to click. And uh, well, explain what you mean by how important it is that we have declarative UI. Well, to me, you know, we're, we're kind of at a, a turning point. Um, you know, for years and years, uh, um, I don't know, 10, 15 years, 
a lot of companies that I worked for were like, well, you know, we've got a spaghetti mess full of code. We're trying to um, redo it or make some modifications, and it's a mess. So when we re-architect this next version of what we're going to do, we're going to make sure and keep the UI code and the UI and the middle tier and the middle tier and the back end and the back end, keep that separation. And um, we get about halfway through the project, and we realize that Bob, the developer, threw some stuff in the UI that should have been in the middle, and and uh, some of the guys are working in the middle um, through business logic into the database, and start to pull out our 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 hair and go, you know, why why is the, does this keep on happening? You know, um, why do developers keep on making these uh, mistakes? And um, you know, often they're way too late. They're found way too late to fix, and so we end up with spaghetti. Even if we've gone in with really good intentions, and you know, what I let, let me define what I mean as declarative UIs, and that is um, um, user interfaces that are defined with with look and feel, but as well as some level of of behavior, though usually a small level of behavior, um, in something that isn't code. Uh, in a uh, 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 domain-specific language of some sort. XAML is a good example. Some of the JavaScript templating libraries are a good example of these. Even JavaFX and um, MXML in the Flex space are all examples of these. And the reason why I think they're so important is um, we've seen the, the re- reintroduction of a lot of these patterns, MVVM, MVC in the, uh, in the ASP.NET space, Declarative UIs make it really obvious when you're programming in the user interface because you're not dealing in code. It's much harder to accidentally put some XAML um, into a Silverlight application that does um, um, business logic because you're not writing code. Where it's a lot easier in the um, um, before if you're de- doing everything in event handlers, if you're doing button click to go if. Um, if Bob's name is greater than um, um, 100, do something wrong. Or if so-and-so has a credit limit of over 400, in that button click, instead of letting it go to that, that, that middle tier or that, that, that model level to do the, that sort of business logic. And that's why I think uh, declarative UIs are helping us not enforce, but um, make it clear to people where they're writing code. It's really about just protecting yourself, that you create this clear boundary between what is UI and what is code? Right, because I think most developers are well-intentioned. I don't think people think, well, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm just going to write code wherever I want. I think they're, they're very well-intentioned that way. And you can certainly with XAML or with any of these, you know, even with the markup um, um, stuff in MVC and ASP.NET MVC, you can put business logic there. You can put a block of code and go make a database call and do some checks and business logic there. But... Um, it, it's the inelegant way to do it. It's obvious that you're doing it in the UI tier when you're doing it. Whereas before, it gets muddled. Is this class really a class I'm using in the middle tier, or am I using it in the UI code? Where is that separation? So I want to lean on the good intentions of most developers to say, hey, 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 remember where you're at. You're in the UI. And, you know, you there, know? It, it's a, it is a clean separation of UI and, and uh, business logic, but... There is some gray logic there that that works with the UI, like logic that enables and disables buttons and f- menu features, things like that. Where where does that end up? Well, to me, that's still about the UI, right? Really? Yeah, okay. because it's um, you can imagine that if the the uh, let's take Silverlight for the example, if the view model is passing you data to show 
but you should be able to use a different view that has a whole different paradigm. Imagine, you know, you have a data entry screen that takes this and enables and disables buttons and um, do, does some sort of commanding behavior to, to give that better experience to the user. But you could be able to use that same data that the view model is supplying to you and doing a um, um, uh, data visualization where none of that matters to the, to the um, model view layer, right? Right, I mean, it's just no providing input. data, and you're showing it to the user. Three uh, that that doesn't belong there. But just to yeah, clarify this definition, then we're presuming that the back end is only sending us the data we should view. That you would not, in the client, say, "Oh, this guy doesn't have sufficient privileges. Don't show him this." That should have been done on the back end. It's only sent me stuff I should show. You could, but that's just more data, right? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't send data that the user wasn't allowed to, but you might also send permissions like this is read-only, this is read-write, this is write-only um, to the UI to make decisions about that. So the UIs don't need to be dumb. Well, let's, uh, let's get into a specific example. Sure. I can think of a, a state, you know, in, a, in an entry form where, you know, like I say, certain buttons are enabled, certain are disabled, and it's based on, Let's say uh, what the user has entered so far. Maybe there's a checkbox that when you check that box, now there's several other options that need to be enabled. So would you have maybe a routine like code or XAML or something in the UI layer that that when that button gets uh, clicked, enables the other things? Or would you have the business logic send... Uh, you know, send some sort of signal that it would react to? It, to me, it, it depends. You know, in the, in the simple case of, um, you know, you, turning on a checkbox or uh, enable some other pieces, doing that in the UI makes a lot more sense. But you have a lot of uh, cases where you're only going to enable part of the UI based on um, um, business logic. Right? right, yeah. For example, somebody's uh, privilege level, they can right. see this screen and not that screen. Or even something as simple as married, enabling the spouse space. And that certainly mm. would be something that you could enable using behaviors in Silverlight and uh, data in the view model to, to make that happen. To me, it's really about are you making a data decision or a UI decision? And if it's a data decision, I think, it's, I think you're right. It belongs in the VM or in, in whatever that middle piece is, the presenter or the... Uh, is one of the side benefits of, of this separation to be able to use different platforms like you know go from uh, uh, a silverlight specific page to an ASP.NET Ajax page to a to a WPF application is or have we abandoned that whole idea of writing you know everything but the UI once and then uh, sticking on a bunch of different UIs for different platforms well I I, I think it's a laudable goal the problem is a technological problem and that is yeah. Um, if we look back in WinForms, we were actually able to do that pretty well. I know that, uh, I'm sorry, um, WebForms, we were actually able to do that pretty well. And I know a lot of people go, what do you mean? You're not supposed to be saying anything nice about WebForms anymore. Yeah, yeah. But back in the day when everything required a post back, it was pretty clear that all your code was going to be on the server side and that you could replace the, the front end if you want. And, mm. you know, in practice, that wasn't a really a reality. But Yeah, there are other uh, things that come into play, like, well, now your data isn't local and now you have right. to go through a web service to get your data or, yeah. 
And that's specifically the problem here is you can certainly, maybe between WPF and Silverlight, there's some synergy shared there. But with AJAX, there really isn't because AJAX um, or JavaScript has its own runtime experience, and so does Silverlight, and so does WPF. And it's very hard to translate something you would write like a, a view model in Silverlight and be able to reuse that in the JavaScript. Yeah, I think this isn't a new problem either. And, and no. you know, maybe uh, maybe you could say Java had this problem in a different way. Java, not JavaScript, but uh, where you're trying to accommodate all these different platforms, you don't do a really good job at any one of them. Right. I'm trying to jump it back here to, is this a laudable goal, actually? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, so not sure entirely convinced that it is, considering the number of, you know, compromises you have to make. To, to make that even possible, you end up with a, a lou- an app that doesn't do anything well. Well, and, it, and certainly um, that's where a pure logic layer comes into, into play, which obviously I think can translate across any platform because if, you're, if you have a class, you know, a tier, a logical tier that's just pure logic and doesn't have to do with data, doesn't have to do with anything, is completely separated, you know, that's about it. That's about all you can count on to pass around, and everything else should be pluggable. Well, it all depends on the interfaces, right? And the location of the client. For example? Well, what I mean by that is, in the case of uh, uh, JavaScript and um, Silverlight, leaving all your logic tier on the server where you can reuse it in, in those ways is great, as long as you're willing to live with the, the round trips. Right. But translating those, you know, you could maybe do shared code into Silverlight. You could maybe do some JavaScript um, um, generation in the client. But that's both of those add complexity. I see. So if your if your logic layer depends on data that might not be where the object where the logic layer is, uh, now you have to write more layers of abstraction to get around that. Or if you want them in the client, you're going to need to have a way to translate that logic across different technologies. JavaScript, Silverlight, um, you know, uh, Flash and Flex, if you're going to do that. You're not going to be able to take one set of logic and compile it into JavaScript, compile it into uh, uh, um, IL, and compile it into bytecode. It just doesn't happen. What if it's declarative logic? Maybe, but then what we don't have today is... a a good engine for for um, write once deploy logic anywhere, you know. And again, we have that same problem that we have that Java had. It was equally sucky on all platforms. Isn't XML that? Maybe, maybe. I'm 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 looking at that space uh, because validation is is kind of one of the highlights here, right? Um, validation is a problem that we've had forever. We don't have a good solution, and. Um, uh, RIA services has brought in this idea of, well, let's bring the validation from the server right. and generate it on the client for you, which is, um, I, I'm not a big fan of, of how they're doing some of that, um, but they're doing something, uh, they're closer to an end user experience than, than we've had in a long time, as, at least for, for client. You know, you looked at uh, web form, um, yeah, web forms. And you really run into the problem of, uh, well, we can do this, but then you're going to have to write a little Java piece for the validation on the, right. on the page and then a server piece because you can't have it only validated in one of two places. And, right. It, um, it, at some point, it seems like, you know, just 
you know, just rewrite it. <laughs> it's like right. going to be so much easier just to fork it and keep two versions of it for our different platforms than it is to, uh, you know, to accommodate being able to reuse something. Well, it's yeah. The, this is the whole Yagni principle, right? You ain't gonna need it. Yeah, and, it, right. and most of the time you're right, and the few times that you're not. Writing it the second time was way easier. And less complex. I mean, you can introduce so much more complexity in the name of reuse. Yeah. And especially projected reuse. Like, you don't know you're going right. to do this. Right, right. The classic, let's write all our SQL and ANSI SQL because we might want to switch to Oracle one day. Right. Hey, Ooh. I've done that project. Let me tell you, it sucked. Everybody has done that project, and it <laughs> always sucks. Ouch. Well, we, we, I actually, we worked on a product where we ran on three different databases and we did not write an ANSI SQL because it made the database layer so lousy that nobody buy the product. Right. So we ended up building an abstract data access layer and writing one for Oracle and one for DB2 and one for SQL Server. That's what you have to do. So you have to do that. It's just not optional. You're not going to get the results that are required. And that's the very thing about making a product. Pretty clearly, your customers are going to tell you by not buying it. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And that you know, that's somewhat the, the you know, with Silverlight and, and .NET on the back end, you, the thought is that, oh, you know, we can just reuse this stuff because um, it's all C-sharp or it's all VB code. should just translate right over, right? Um, but it still doesn't. Uh, you know, looking at some basic things that you start to depend on, it becomes tragic very quickly. There's just key differences between them. Yeah, yeah. Not only performance characteristics, but um, um, just the size of the framework. You know, simple things like type descriptors don't exist in Silverlight. Yeah, right. They're just not there to save space. Right. Because no one ever thought that we'd need them. And, uh, uh, and there's a ton of stuff like that. A ton of stuff like that. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the new TFS Work Item Manager and TFS Project Dashboard. So if you're spending a lot of time on organizing the cluttered pile of work items in TFS, get ready for a fresh and intuitive experience. The guys at Telerik just launched the TFS Work Item Manager and Project Dashboard, a couple of free tools designed to make working with Team Foundation Server faster and easier. Unlike the standard TFS Explorer, the Work Item Manager lets you take advantage of powerful capabilities like filtering, as-you-type search, grouping and aggregation, and iteration scheduling. You can even see all the work items in a Scrum dashboard view, as if watching the whiteboard in your own room. Project Dashboard is a unique tool for visualizing TFS data. Useful for both developers and project managers, it helps you keep track of the latest TFS project activity like current iteration progress, build history, recent check-ins, assigned tasks and bug history, and to understand the health of the project as a whole. The TFS tools are brought to you by Telerik and Imaginet, the experts in application lifecycle management. Built with RAD controls for WPF, they're both amazingly flexible and responsive. Go to Telerik.com and download the TFS tools for free. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So, so we've established the fact that Declarative UI really isn't about portability of tiers. No. It's really about separation of concerns so that uh, when something goes wrong, there's uh, you have a, to quote Richard Campbell, you have a, a smaller blast radius to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think so. I mean, you know, if you look at kind of where the agile space is right now, the whole idea is about, you know, being able to react to change. Uh, right. Uh, I read some of those blog posts that, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to remember now, but I'll apologize on my blog later for it. Um, but he was talking about, you know, uh, customer-driven development, this idea of getting to know what the customer wants before you write code. And that would be wonderful if the customer had any clue what they wanted. Or communication skills. Right. And and this is another place where I think declarative um, UI is so important is that because you have that clear separation, it's not about finding a bug and having to change it. It's about showing it to the customer and them going, oh, that's not at all what we thought. Yeah. Or now that we've seen that, we re- we know what we'd really like and it's completely different. Right. I remember um, one of my first one of my first jobs in the tech business, my job was to um, uh, do a little slideshow, and this was DOS computers. And there was a mm-hmm. there was a program that would take screen captures and allow you to do these sort of slideshows that would turn into uh, compile an executable program, and you ran it, and it would you know have wipes and all of that stuff, and you could have arrows, you know, ASCII characters, but uh, pointing to different things, you could do these call-out windows and things. So my job was to do a slideshow uh, showing off this product, and I spent a long time on it. I mean, you know how I am, Richard. I mean, like when I have like a creative project, I'll just spend like a a long time perfecting it to what I think is right. So then I showed it to uh, my boss, and he said, "Ah, that's that sucks." That's way too big. No, what we need, and then then came the specifics, you know. Right. <laughs> and I was pissed. I was like, you know, why couldn't we have sat down beforehand, before I spent all this time, because it, you know, figuring out the program was trivial. I spent most of my time just perfecting, you know, taking the shots and perfecting what I thought was right. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But the reality yeah. is, until he saw. The one he didn't like. He didn't know what he wanted. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Well, and it, it really gets back to the the you know we're we're not talking about anything new here. This is sort of that core problem of the customer doesn't know what's possible, and you don't know what they actually need, and and so we battle back and forth. Which is why you know in Silverlight with Sketchflow and with uh, Balsamic and and Flash and even web sites. That stuff's becoming more important because if you know your UI is throw away, you're going to try to invest less and less and less in in the ideas and the in the napkin story, right? Because there's no, you know they just they just don't get it, and that's okay because you know they're usually the business people, right? They don't know how uh, it, it's going to be easy to use the the system, or even uh, the users don't even really know. They often want exactly what the old system did. You know, right. make sure that when I press enter, it tabs instead of tab. I don't want to have to learn a new key and all that. You get caught up in the stuff instead of kind of going, let's clean slate and, and and force you to think about the problem in a different way. Now you just mentioned the napkin sketch. And that, yeah. that, you know, immediately brings to mind Sketchflow, mm-hmm. which is, uh, for those who don't know Sketchflow, and we've talked, we talked about it, uh, Kathleen Dollard brought it up during that show on uh, software being too complex. But other than that, we never talked about it on .NET Rocks. And we did a DNR TV, you and I, recently mm-hmm. on Sketchflow. So just tell us a little bit about this and what, if it's for WPF, for Silverlight, for both, what is it? Sure. Sketchflow is a product 
uh, inside of Blend, which is the XAML editor uh, for Microsoft and the Expression team, Expression Blend. It works with WPF and Silverlight. And really what it is, this is a way to do um, sketches um, using XAML so that you can present um, ideas to the customer that, that uh, um, look like sketches so that they can make some decisions about where they want to go. And it's not only the look, it's not only something that maybe you would do on paper, but it, um, because it's XAML, you can do real data binding to it. You can do flow between screens and all the things you need to do to make really good um, 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 prototypes. And it's clear to the user their prototypes because they look handwritten. And that's kind of the yeah. That's the important part when you're talking to customers. It really is, and what you what you brought up in that DNR TV was was really that when you make it look like a drawing, they're less apt to say, they're they're less apt to want to turn that into a prototype, right? Or a product. Or a product. Yeah, that's what I mean. A product from a prototype, and that's the that's the pitfall everybody falls into. You build a prototype, and the classic example is in Visual Basic, right? Build a right. prototype in Visual Basic. Um, and it sort of works and it kind of works, but you know, of course it's not doing things the right way. And, uh, they, they say, that's great. Ship it. Or uh, we're just going to use it for the, for the pitch. Can you just make it work for the sales call? Right. And then they get the sale and they're like, well, we're going to have to ship it now. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's, that's the flow that I've seen. Yeah. The other things that making it not look like a real product do is allow them to focus on what's important. When when people don't know what you want from them, they're going to latch on to stuff. And this is what I call the blue button problem. You show them an app and they go, wow, that button is really blue. Could we make it less blue or could we make it more blue? They focus on something that they can have a concrete opinion about. Where if it doesn't look like an app, you don't get caught up in worrying about the minutia. Let's worry about the big story, the, the flow between screens. Is this all the data you want access to? Is this the, the way you want to be able to access menus or whatever the case may be? Don't get, uh, you force them to not think about the aesthetics yet. Yeah. The funny part, of course, is that it is actually WPF, so you just substitute a new template in, and it does look like a UI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what Kathleen Dollar and I talked about at length um, privately about was that in both of our minds, we kind of see this as a, a way to more parallel um, UI development. Because not only because it's XAML can you turn it into a real app at some point or throw it away and, and write the app from scratch. You have that power to do either. And, and I think there's, there's cases for both. But because the underneath is still code, you can start having your developers that are doing the middle tier and the back end not be gated by the UI decisions. So I yeah. can start to work on the data design or I can start to work on the business tier knowing full, fully well that the UI um, um, is in flux still, that we're still in that negotiation phase um, with the customer. And what, well, to bring back Sketchfold for just a minute, one of the features that uh, I find really interesting is the ability to deploy a sketch out to a web server or as an executable for a client and then to look and play with the app and the sketchiness. It's it's a real app. It's not just on paper. Right. Um, and then to annotate it, you can you can have them circle stuff and write notes and and all of that annotation information can come back directly into Blend. So that um, that circle of of uh, design is a full circle. It's not. Let's show them a PowerPoint slide and then take notes and then go back to our desk and make edits and bring them back the PowerPoint slide. It's it's something a lot more real than that. 
for those of us who haven't seen Blend uh, in a while, tell us about the status of it. I think Blend's in a pretty good state. Um, what version are we know, on? We're on version three, and uh, um, it, it's clearly the most stable version we've been on, which is for most of us is really good. Um, but they've added some features that make it a lot nicer for developers right now. Um, they've added IntelliSense so that we can now uh, um, type the angle bracket if we really want in Blend and get full IntelliSense like we do in Visual Studio. Nice. And even um, uh, handling simple code, you can open up a, a CS file and type with IntelliSense the uh, code as well. Though um, I would say Visual Studio is a much better experience for both of those. But this way you don't have to flip back to Visual Studio to make every little change. So sometimes if you're using Blend to do the, the large design, but you just want to tweak something because you know you, the way you want it by typing the angle brackets, go for it. Yeah. They, they have either a split view or a, or an, uh, or a um, full view of either the code or the, or the design. They've also added TFS integration, so you can finally get your Blend guys to check in and check out, or uh, get and merge, or whatever the the phrases are now that that are escaping me. Do we have uh, support for Silverlight three? Silverlight three, um, WPF three five, and obviously when this moves towards .NET four, there'll be support for um, WPF four as well. So uh, right cool. now the features are. Um, are very parodied in, in Blend as far as if the feature exists for Silverlight, it exists for WPF and vice versa. Um, for a while there, the WPF had a lot more features, and then Silverlight had a few features that that WPF didn't, but now they're they're very much a one-to-one parody. And so actually the stuff that the, the Silverlight team built got backported into WPF. And vice versa, yeah. Right. Um, some of the stuff like the Visual State Manager got backported, and the, the um, data grid got backported. So um, it's an interesting ecosystem because they're not built by the same team. Yeah. That's it. And, and it, it, it's, it's good to see them doing that because my experience, that's pretty rare inside of Microsoft that two teams, you know, sort of at cross purposes like this get together and sort of get things coordinated. Sure. Absolutely. You know, the, in Silverlight 2 was interesting because everyone said, that came from WPF. We want triggers. We want triggers. We want triggers. We can't do anything without triggers, which are these ways of making things happen when events happen. And the Silverlight team said, uh, triggers are cool, but designers don't get it. So let's invent this thing called the Visual State Manager that designers get. And as soon as they saw that, most of the WPF guys went, oh, now we want that, because that's much better than triggers in most cases. Because triggers ended up being really complex if you wanted right. some simple interaction. Yeah, well, and the big thing for me, the difference between Silverlight and WPF besides the footprint, is this, you're on the far end of a mediocre performance, relatively latent, unreliable connection. Make your trips gently. Right. And, and, and that, to me, is a very different set of thinking than, hey, it's client-server, it's all gigabit all the time, don't worry about it. Right. And Sean, just to, just to be clear, Sketchflow, is this a WPF-only thing, or is this Silverlight too? Silverlight and WPF. Very cool. Covers both. Yep. And this really does lend into the whole declarative UI model because you're in the end you're building XAML under the hood, right? Right. Well, you are building XAML underneath the hood, and one of the things that the Blend team came up with um, that they've added kind of the mix to Silverlight um, and uh, WPF is these things called behaviors. Behaviors are these very simple UI-centric verbs. 
So, uh, you know, at, at one point, everything was done with triggers. So we, you could say, on mouse over, change this property or start the, or um, fire this event or whatever. Behaviors, um, um, again, are a little bit more designer-focused because they can say, when some event happens, do this. And this, this could be pop up a message box, start a storyboard, change a color, or something much more complex like uh, call the, um, the VM's method called this. Um, it's still not a place for business logic, but it's a way to have um, look and feel and um, verbs all in the declarative UI. Yeah, I sort of think of it like uh, like a like an event handler with code behind it that also <laughs> that also works on the, that only works on the UI. Right. We had behaviors in DHTML too. I mean, going way back. Yeah, but both the developers that used DHTML really enjoyed them. <laughs> yeah, well, because they're old, right? It's like IE five kind of thing, but nobody understood them. No, both guys, no. both guys, <laughs> both guys. Yeah, they were really, really good for those guys. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same concept. What, what I find fascinating about behaviors is um, uh, is how they came out. Uh, how they came to being because they're from the Blend team. They're not from the Silverlight team. They're not from the WPF team. They're actually shipped with the Blend SDK. Interesting. So uh, Peter Bloys and, and and that team all said, you know, we need this and let's build it. In fact, behaviors are built on built on uh, stuff that could be used in Silverlight too. It's just built on stuff. There's no there was no magic that had to be done in Silverlight three to enable them or anything. They're just they're just uh, um, attached properties. Huh. Uh, you know, another angle of this separation of concerns, then, is the whole testing angle of things. Mm-hmm. So, Because we've always debated whether there was such a thing as a testable UI. Well, and I think that's still a debate. You know, <laughs> when I teach MVVM, I, I talk about, you know, building not only the model as an interface with the V model as well, but with the idea that you could mock it out and actually test the UI. Now, in practice, I don't know how realistic that is. You know, it's kind of like mocking a database in my mind. At some point, don't you want to be testing with real data? So, um, it's it's uh, another one of these things I think would be really useful to you know be able to test extents and and uh, um, um, limits with the actual UI, but automating that is really difficult. Right. You compare screenshots. I mean, I'm not sure what the, what the right goal is. Certainly it could help mock out the UIs for testing um, from interactive testing, from human testing. But I don't think for, you know, in the same way that unit tests are, are, are um, um, uh, automatable, that you're going to see the same thing in UI testing. And there are tools out there for doing web UI testing, but they're sort of specialized area. And and by your description, then Silverlight and and the whole Zan- declarative XAML approach doesn't give us anything special as far as making testing easier. No, but it does have some of the automation, um, um, not some of the automation, the automation interfaces that it uses for the um, screen readers and such. Right. That you can use to actually do automation test, automated testing in that way. The problem is validating it, right? I can make the UI do stuff, but how do I test the output is, is, has always been my frustration. Yeah. All you're getting is a visual representation. Does the text get big when I hover over it? Right. 
Now, certainly, you know, having it manually enter form data, press save, and to see if the data's changed, that's awesome. But but now that UIs aren't, you know, uh, gray, ugly boxes, there's a lot more in the UI to test. Right. Yeah, and it's and it's more difficult to, to understand, too. So really, they, the big thing for me in valuing a declarative UI is you know, shrinking the blast radius. When I'm doing that functional end-to-end testing and I have a problem with business logic, I don't have to go scouring the UI for that business logic problem. Yeah. And hopefully the unit tests against your business logic will have found or at least isolated that problem. Right. To where it's not even a UI problem. You the know, UI if there's a bug involved. in the UI, bug in the UI. But at least from below the UI, you know you can do really good unit testing. Is there a way to test XAML? Well, it matters what you want to do with it. When you say test XAML, XAML is just a, uh, um, an object graph, so sure. Right. So that, you know, what I'm, it's very, <laughs> I'm trying to think about how to write that test. It's like, must show the color red, you know? Must animate from top left to bottom right with flare. So you can certainly cause the animation to happen and test the end conditions. Right. Yeah. Because it's just an object model in memory. True. I mean, you could test where it ends up, yeah. But that doesn't really test the look and feel. It doesn't, and that's, that, and that's the problem. Yeah, especially when you're talking about visualizations where how it looks matters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's totally subjective, really. Yeah, must have mm-hmm. a nice shine. Yeah, <laughs> must be right shade of blue. Yeah. Or write a test to make sure that they're that all the buttons are shiny. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all the boxes have rounded corners. You know the important stuff. Yeah. So when you go to Sketchflow and you draw out this UI and and do this iteration, what does it take to turn it into the quote real UI? There's actually a a walkthrough in the uh, in the blend three docs, but essentially what you're doing is you're removing the style from all the elements and either leaving it ugly or applying your own styles to all those elements. So right. th- that's really the big difference. The other things that need to be changed um, are smaller, and that is the project type isn't a, is a um, Sketchflow project. It ships in this thing that can take annotations and such. So you have to change some of the way the app uh, that XAML that, um, um, startup happens, but that's pretty trivial. That's just a little refactoring. And when you're creating your UIs in Sketchflow, are you using a designer or is this hand-editing XAML still? No, using the designer. And in fact, what Sketchflow brings in, which is something we don't have outside of Sketchflow very easily right now, is the idea of a flow. So there's actually a, a panel where you say, here we have one screen, two screen, three screen, four screen, and this is how you navigate between them. Right. This button navigates, uh, skips screen two and goes to three. And, and when the user is evaluating Sketchflow, not only are they being able to play with, with your sketched app, but they can actually see the flow in a diagram. So you're letting them look. This is part of that making it feel like a, uh, a test case that they actually could see the workflow and, and, Annotate it or modify it? Uh, annotate it, not modify it, but annotate right. it. One of the things that almost no one talks about with Sketchflow, which I think is kind of a cool hidden feature, is, well, what if you don't want a designer to start with the design? What if you want your business analysts or your stakeholders to start with the design? And you can. You can use the, the um, world's easiest UI designer that everybody knows how to use. Do you know what that is? Excel? 
PowerPoint. PowerPoint, uh, okay. So what that allows you to do is have um, uh, users or stakeholders who, or whomever come up with some other ideas, and you can actually import PowerPoint into a Sketchflow app, and it'll create just a bitmap of every page. It won't create any of the animations or anything. but um, And that can kind of give your designers a beginning um, um, step, you know, maybe even a trace place for them to start with so that we can have that communication actually start from the people who care about the app, get the designers involved to make it actually look pretty and work, go back to them and, and start to formulate it. So it doesn't always have to start with a designer. Well, and I like that. I tend to talk to managers who about the workflow. I don't know if you guys have ever counted this as a consultant, but often we get brought into companies that have grown to a certain size where really their problem is their existing business practices are wrong. Right. And but they believe that software will fix the problem. So they hire you as the software guy to go and create software to solve the problem. And really what you end up doing is walking around the office, pointing at sacred cows and saying, Why do you do this? Yeah. And and why is I'm just trying to understand here. You know, I'm just trying to get the workflow down. And when you actually critique the workflow itself, you end up substantially changing it because you, you scrutinize these old practices that don't make sense anymore. Absolutely. I I worked on a medical lab project probably a decade ago, and part of that project we went out to the lab companies because we were building a product for doctors to order labs. We had this uh, whole dial-up system where we dial up into the lab, send them uh, the lab reports, and they would you know do it reversed. And so we visited the lab, and we saw that when we sent a lab report to them, it would print out on a dot matrix printer. Someone would rip it off walk across the room and type it into their lab computer. Awesome. Man. Awesome. And then do the reverse. So, of course, there were two steps at which you could screw up the lab. Either give us the wrong results because you transposed it or order the wrong lab. Or um, It was just amazing to me. And it's that very thing of, well, why do you do that? Well, we don't have any way of making those work. One boss wanted this. One boss wanted that. And, and we're just trying to get our work done. So, yeah, there's that moment where you sort of say, if I could eliminate that step for you, would that be good? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah, I never thought that of that. that would be good. Yeah, that would be good. So, and I think you're, you're just getting back into this idea of how do we initially create the UI, getting away, I recognize the UI is this paradigm for the actual workflow of the business. Right. What are the steps you need to take to finish your job and maybe we can come up with a better set of steps well you know that's that's a that's a real problem you know in general uh, i'm sure you guys have talked about the oslo piece and to me oslo is like declarative workflow right i mean right the idea of being able to say how do you do your business let me let me document that for you so that we can understand it so that we can in theory put it in code right we're going to encode it in some way um, the people who make the business run are almost never the technologists, unless you're at a Google or a, right. um, a technology-centric company. But most, you know, most of the money out there is in the guys that that just make sure that the cogs keep them moving. And they don't care how it gets done. They've found these patterns that work, and so they're afraid to to move them. But they can describe them really well, right? And uh, so having a way to to write that down, you can think about the declarative UI as kind of the first step of that. 
you we have now a format a a language that designers can say this is how you make the box rounded and the sh- drop shadow happen yeah but separate of that you know haven't you i've noticed that microsoft consistently has had problems building as tools that capture that level of the work the real you know who buys the architects edition of team system and what does it do really you know that, oh, exactly that, that whole modeling part of show me the business workflow first, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty stuff, it's just never taken off. No, the White Horse stuff was a disappointment. And I looked at some of the 2010 stuff there, and it, it's better, but it's still, it still feels like case tools. Well, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to say UML. It gives me chills. Uh-huh. So I mean, I, I'm laughing because here's the blend team, which last time I looked, they were like graphics guys yeah. who've come up with a tool that to me feels like the place you'd want to start with a new customer to start designing the application. All right. Can I get back to uh, declarative UI for just a second in uh, some, uh, an issue that we are all very familiar with? Why do people, well, and specifically, why does... Why does Billy Hollis not like MVVM? And and is that okay? Well, you know, of course it is. I mean, we should really ask him, you know, but he he he's basically I'm right, you're wrong and you know, I ship software and this is unnecessary. And it may be. You know, the the reality is for me is that um patterns are only helpful if they're helpful, right? Um you know, I often get asked I'm trying to create an application and I can't keep my um, my views um, um, codeless. What am I doing wrong? And I'm like, you're not doing anything wrong. It's a it's a goal. It's not a destination. If if the pattern isn't helping you do your job, then don't use the pattern. Right. Right. I mean, that should have been the mantra when the Gang of Four came out. But everyone then tried to fit square pegs and round holes everywhere. Um, and that's always been my my attitude about patterns. And MVVM is just a pattern. If it's helpful, it's helpful. The problem is that when you're building a large Silverlight application, I have a, a client in Holland that is building an um, application with nearly 7,000 screens. They, by using uh, good patterns, they're able to do things uh, efficiently and find problems when they happen. When you're building a two-screen um, um, ordering screen for a pizza restaurant, who cares if you use a pattern, right? Yeah. I mean, there's not enough code for the pizza place to get spaghetti code. Uh, you know? Dum dum. <laughs> you said pizza and spaghetti in the same sentence. I just said nice. Now I'm hungry. I did. I was expecting a rim shot. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so, okay. So, so what you're saying is, and this has always actually been my philosophy too, is that, is that these technologies help when things get really complex. If you still, if you can wrap your mind, if it's small enough where you can wrap your mind around the whole thing and remember where everything is and know exactly how to fix things when they happen, more power to you. Yeah, it's going to take you more time to set up a MVVM application than it will a write everything in the code behind. Absolutely. Um, not a lot. Uh, some of the frameworks are being really good about helping you that, but there is extra, there are extra bits involved and extra labor in, involved. Well, you know, in... in in Billy's defense, I don't think he's writing code behind buttons. You know, he does have separation of concerns. He just doesn't use the MVVM model. Well, in my attitude, I don't care what the what model you're using. 
um, the the problem I run into, at least when I teach MVM, is you have people that are hearing separation of concerns is going to make my job easier, mm. but they don't know how to go about it. And yeah. that's where patterns are powerful, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's sharing, share, uh, that's sharing information. Uh, I know companies that are using uh, MVC and MVP in Silverlight and having success with it as well, because in their organizations, they already have a lot of knowledge in those patterns. So why try to shove them into this into the MVVM pattern just because it's supposed to be done in Silverlight. You know, as soon as you get draconian about anything, it's unuseful. Yeah, imagine that chilling moment when your manager tells you, by the way, I want you to build that in MVVM. And that's yeah. happening. Uh, absolutely that's happening. You know, I would love if everyone used MVVM and, and took a two-day course to learn how to do it ahead of time. Mm. But except for those guys, I think only the people that need to use it should use it. We're uh, just about out of time here, Sean. Is there any last-minute things you want to throw out there? One thing, uh, we were talking about Sketchflow a minute ago. I forgot to mention that I want everyone to know about is um, I've learned that there are a lot of organizations that are still scared of of presenting information in a Sketchflow. And um, one of the things that Sketchflow does allow you to do, I, I want to highlight, is you can export your Sketchflow as Word Docs. And uh, so organizations that are used to kind of this paper trail and these big three ring binders, Sketchflow uh, supports that as well, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. So that if you need to make a sort of a a spec. It does. At least the wireframe of a spec. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Nice. I always like being able to automatically generate documentation nobody reads. Absolutely. 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 <laughs> I'm a big at, De- at DevLink, when I, I showed the feature, I didn't think it was that important. That got the biggest, oh, of the whole day. I was like, really? Word docs? Mm-hmm. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Less cutting and pasting when you have to do manual. Absolutely. Sean, thank you very much. It's been very enlightening. Awesome. As always, good to talk to you. And we'll see you next time on Batman Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a